So this is Matt, Chris, and Jen from Free Associations here. And unlike our most of our episodes, we're, we're doing a little bit of an intro to this podcast, which we have already recorded because we wanted to just add some thoughts to this one before you listen. Largely because, as you'll hear, this was a this was a challenging episode for us um, professionally and, and personally to talk about because of the nature. We're talking about gun violence, and um, I do think that the focus of this podcast was on a, a study that came out um, looking at uh, ERPO laws, which are the red flag laws where, where guns can be taken away from people who have exhibited signs of 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 violence or the potential to um, commit acts of of mass violence and you'll hear we we talk about this as we do in all episodes um, in the first segment we talk about it as a, a piece of evidence and I one of the things that I do want to clarify as I listened back to this episode was I think that I come across as very focused on the evidence itself uh, and how much evidence this actually provides in support of these particular laws. And I, I think I don't spend enough time talking about my personal feelings that I think that these are, this is a, this is a horrific problem that we need to do things about. And I want to make clear that I don't think that this is a case where we necessarily can wait for evidence. So we need to actually try uh, a lot of different things that are potential, have the potential to reduce uh, gun violence, uh, and not we can't actually wait for evidence to make those decisions. That to me was was different from what the evidence actually says. But I I think that that is a point that we really that really didn't come across in the way that I talked about this. So keep that in mind as you as you listen to this. Anything either of you want to clarify before we uh, enter this one? Yeah, just that you know this is uh, I think without a doubt the most emotionally uh, com- complicated podcast we've ever recorded uh, on this show um, and the one that has caused the most in a sort of internal debate within us um, and um, uh, you know we all just want to sort of emphasize the seriousness with which we we, we took this issue okay so with that um, on to the show Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by tennis scoring. So I tuned in. I, I don't watch a lot of tennis. Do you guys watch tennis? Yeah, yeah not really. And I don't, I don't, like, first of all, the obvious question that I'm sure everyone asks, why, why do we go 0, 15, 30, 40? I don't know. And what about love? And then there's the love. Well, I know I do know where that comes from. Okay, tell that me. That is French. Le, le oof. <laughs> the egg? The egg. Zero. <sighs> uh, that is where that comes from. So I do but know still, that. why ten, why fifteen, thirty, forty? I do not know. And then and then you get into the back and forth of the 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 uh, I avantage. Just, point is, I can't do it. I can't yeah. do it. Oh. Yeah, you know, you know, when I was uh, in middle school, yeah. was, I went to summer camp at Min- Middlesex. No, at Min- Minuteman High School summer camp tennis camp. Yeah. yeah, and there was this kid on my camp team called Skip. And every time <laughs> if we you're listening, get, Skip, <laughs> we would get to thirty thirty. He would say technical deuce because mathematically it's the same. Because you still got to win by two points. And what? to this day, every time I get to 30-30, I think of him. 
And it is so I don't know what that means. Irritating. What does that mean? Because 40, 40 is deuce, right? Yep. And you have to win by two. Yep. 30, 30, 40 game. It's the same thing. It's technically exactly, mathematically is identical to so 40, it's a, 40. It's a, it's a silly it's, scoring system. It's, a, it's technical deuce. 40, 40 is actual deuce. I mean, it's just like, who cares? It's wow. the same. Wow. Thanks, Skip. Oh, thanks, Skip. Skip ruins everything. <laughs> Hope you're not listening, Skip. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health Matt, here. Matt, we need to mention the Public Health Exchange, the Population Health Exchange website. Go ahead. And mention it now. There is a, a website yeah. called the Population Health Exchange yeah. website. What, what happens there? Uh-huh. Exactly. Because you don't have a script. They talk about population health and they exchange information. Exactly. And we're going to go with that and we're going to say, I'm just going to cross that off. And Les Leslie Talalian knows something about yes. it. You should write to her. But more importantly, Chris Gill, <laughs> we are not here alone, are we, in the Godly studio? No, 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 no. We're Who's not, with us? We're accompanied by Jennifer Ryder of Welcome. Epidemiology. Hello. Hello. We are, are back for another episode and I have some fantastic news for you guys. Really good news. Are you excited? You ready? I'm ready. We have reached a milestone in terms of our ratings. So we are now the number six podcast in the category of medicine on iTunes. Wow. No way. In Portugal. <laughs> during the time period when they were during the time period when they were redoing the rankings and they went all haywire so we're not actually six in portugal now but we were at one point momentarily yeah so i really i mean you can see right there there we are right behind the peter adia drive and medical mysteries and so, how many people listen to them well i'm not gonna get into it it's a, a small group of people it's a very intimate podcast anyway now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are going to take on a study of extreme risk protections in California, I believe it is. Yeah? yeah. Extreme risk protection orders. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, um, we're going to talk about essentially the same thing, although we're going to get into a, a little bit about how we feel about talking about this particular study. Um, and I'll shed a little bit more light on that when we get to it. And then in our amazing and amusing, we will talk about things that are amazing or amusing. Uh -huh. So with that introduction, let's get into the first segment. So we're going we're gonna to talk about a study that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was entitled Extreme Risk Protection Orders Intended to Prevent Mass Shootings, a Case Series, by first author Garen J. Wittenmute of UC Davis School of Medicine, Sacramento, California. And let me give you some of the headlines on this one. So, uh, Fierce Health says, can red flag laws prevent mass shootings? 21 cases suggest the answer is yes. And I picked that one in particular because I thought it was the most definitive. Uh, Yahoo says, red, red flag gun laws can help prevent mass shootings, UC Davis study says. CNN News says, red flag laws can play a role in preventing mass shootings, study says. And the San Jose Mercury, and I picked that one because it was from California, study California's red flag laws may have helped reduce mass shootings. So... I'm just going to preface this with just by saying that I did not want to do this study when we originally, Chris found this study, presented it, and I, my original reaction was I don't want to talk about this one for reasons that we will get into in the first segment and reasons we will get into in the second segment. But Chris, you were really interested in doing this one, so I want you to give us both, you know, sort of what the study was about, but also why why you thought this one was important for us to take on. Yeah, so... 
the, the study was, um, came to my attention, not through the media, but actually through a Facebook post by uh, my former chair of medicine when I was a resident uh, at Oregon Health Sciences, a, a, a physician called Thomas Cooney, who I uh, am still in contact with and is, is a very, very good person and was a terrific mentor, if you're listening, Tom. And it also came right on the heels of, of the recent mass shootings over the summer. And so I think we were all feeling extremely raw and frustrated as we have again and again and again over the past few years because of this this recurring problem. And so when this, this came across, it felt me like, you know, mainly on this podcast, we have steered away from topics that I think we would say are, 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 for the most, socially controversial and have tried to steer away from politics. And and inevitably, when one talks about gun control, the, you, you cannot really get far away from the politics. And, and so we were leery about doing that because we wanted to keep the podcast relatively apolitical. But at the same time, I started to feel like, you know, this is such an important issue. And, and I feel like, you know, we're at a school of public health and, and you know, I want to take a stand on this. So I felt that, that we, we should do this. And that was mitigated by the knowledge that this, the study has obvious flaws and they authors are very clear about that and, you know, admit it right up front. And and without, you know, sort of trying to hint at this, the, the main issue is that this is a case series. It is an uncontrolled case series by definition. Um, and therefore, inferring causality is impossible because there is no counterfactual. At least we can say that from a statistics perspective. But with that said, I wanted to like sort of frame this first as a question to you both, which is, does the fact that a an observational study, even particularly, I guess, in this case, an uncontrolled observational study, preclude us from, from drawing conclusions that lead our opinion as to possible efficacy of the intervention, even in the absence of a, of a, of a control? Okay. So, so we'll come back to that after we talk okay. about what's in the So this, this the is study. sort of, in, in a way, I'm, I'm restating Bayes', uh, Bayes' theorem here. It's like, this is a piece of information, this is a piece of data, it's going to nudge us one way or the other on our opinions. And can... can but how much? But how much? Can, can a case series, an uncontrolled case series, mm-hmm. nudge us uh, forward? Okay. All right. So with that, let me, um, let me sort of uh, summarize the paper a little bit. The, the background uh, has to do with these things called extreme risk protection orders, or or ERPOs, but nobody calls them ERPOs. We know them as red flag laws. Now, the the ERPOs, the red flag laws, allow uh, law enforcement agents, you know, to seize weapons from an individual who's perceived to be at risk of, of harming themselves or at harming others imminently. These are laws that rest essentially on a restraining order uh, legislature. It's very similar to restraining orders. So it is sort of building on that sort of legal precedent for how one deals with, with, with dangerous individuals in, in, in um, volatile situations. The impression has been, based on evaluation of these red flag laws, that they do seem to be efficacious in the setting of people who are planning to kill themselves. And and the the paper here cites a number of of, of other articles, which I apologize I have not read, as as evidence that ERPOs can reduce the risk of, of suicide. Now there were also two examples of. ERPOs that had not been used in the case of, of suicide, but in the case of trying to prevent mass shootings. And these were two quite sort of shocking cases, one in Vermont, both in the last few years. And in the case of the Vermont, this was an 18-year-old teenager um, who cited the Parkland shootings as his personal inspiration to do a copycat mass shooting at his own school, quoting 
I am going to kill as many as I can, end quote. And then he, the, this was uh, flagged by uh, people in the school who were afraid of this individual. The police intervened and confiscated guns and arrested him. There was a, a similar event in Washington State where there was an individual who had been inspired by the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. right, who quoted, I'm shooting for 30 Jews. And he was arrested and guns were confiscated. And so neither of these led to a mass shooting, of course, because the individuals were, were arrested. So, you know, of course, there's no counterfactual here. Now, around this time, around uh, 19, uh, excuse me, 2016, California became the first state in the nation to pass a red flag law, which they call the Gun Violence Restraining Order Law, or GVRO. Now, I may flip back and forth between calling this red flag or GVO or ERPO. These are all synonymous. They're the same thing. So I apologize. I'll try to stick with one term. Now, in the California law, there are three tiers by which the intervention can occur. The, the, the lowest tier is a temporary restraining order that uh, is available uh, on demand 24-7 and can be initiated only by police officers. And this is based on a minimal threshold of suspicion, the preponderance of evidence that an individual poses an immediate and present danger to themselves or to others. And based on that, the cops can go in and restrain this individual and take away their guns. Okay, but it is a, a temporary, is intended to be a temporary intervention and that the, the guns would, would probably be restored to the person quite quickly. The second tier, the higher tier, is called a temporary uh, emergency order, which is an ex parte court uh, appearance. Ex parte means that the person who is afraid, who is citing this person I have seen engaging in you know, dangers to himself or to or, or him or herself or to others, goes to the court with or or it could be the police and so and, and basically makes a case in front of a judge saying I, I believe this person is is a threat and here's why but the the, the ex parte part of it is that the individual who's being accused is not part of this deliberation so it is a one-sided argument and if that is granted it leads to a three-week revocation of the guns and and you know further uh, evaluation of the of the individual to see what the circumstances are and whether this is a, a credible threat the third and the highest tier is called an order after hearing. And this is more like a traditional court where the petitioner actually has to present their evidence and their argument themselves or presumably through a lawyer or you know a, a, a proxy. Um, but the accused is allowed to also be in court and to defend themselves and may have a lawyer to defend themselves. And so it, be, it becomes much more like, like a trial. But if this restraining order is granted, then the guns can be, re- can be removed for up to one year. Now, the, the burden of proof goes from lowest to highest in these three. But they all have the same theme of allowing law enforcement to step in during a, an imminent or perceived to be soon to be imminent uh, crisis. Okay. So that's, that's, um, that is the, the background for this. Now, what the California research team that's reporting this is doing is looking at the experience of the implementation of their GVRO law over the past three years. And this is a case series that consisted of, of a source pool of of GVRO actions, including 414 separate incidents. Now, out of those, they were able to get the data on 159. So this is is a work in progress for them. And of those 159, 21 reflected uh, cases where there was reasonable suspicion that this was not a suicide attempt or a domestic abuse attempt, but was specifically a mass shooting threat. And then they reported on that. Now, 
I'm going to summarize the key statistics that are, these are just descriptive statistics. There isn't a single p-value in this, this paper or chi-square or anything that we are just looking at proportions. So the, the average age of the individuals who were accused of being a threat were 35. Of these 35, 19 out of 21 were men. Out of these 21 individuals, 13 were white, non-Hispanic. 14 of the 21 had a gun. Three out of 21 were in the process of buying a gun. 17 of the 21 had a, had a stated declaration of intent to cause mass harm. They had said so in social media or had bragged about it to colleagues or had made comments to their workplace that they were going to shoot up a bunch of people, basically. And four out of 21 had also had, had either had, did not have a declaration of intent, but had exhibited suggestive and frightening behavior that led other police to believe that this was the case. The target for these 21 events, seven of them, the threat was directed at at the place of the, the current or former place of work, and in this case, it's almost always former because most of these individuals had been terminated for different reasons. Five out of 21 were threatened school shootings. Four out of 21 were, um, were amongst individuals for whom there was a, a concrete psychological diagnosis. Okay, which I think is an important one because this has been one of the talking points for the pro-gun lobby that this is really a mental health issue. But, uh, but according to these data, in fact, the issue, the, the number of individuals who officially had a mental health issue was in the vast minority. So most would not have been picked up based on history of depression or anxiety or psychosis or something like that. And then very interesting, uh, only two out of the 21 seem to have been motivated by politics. So again, the, the talking point, the prevalent talking point that this is uh, ex-U.S. terrorism or you know Muslims living in the United States threatening to attack non-Muslims or 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 the, or the like uh, is actually not borne out at all by by these statistics. In fact, it is vastly the opposite. It is not. Political terrorism. So, so those are the the uh, sort of the risk profiles. But then, in terms of what happened next, this is sort of also where it gets really quite interesting. So, for three of the twenty-one cases, the gun purchase, the attempted gun purchase, was blocked by law enforcement. In ten out of twenty-one, guns were actually confiscated. And this is interesting because a lot of these declarations of of, of intention to commit mass harm were perpetrated by people who didn't have who appeared not to either have guns, in some cases, which is interesting, um, or possibly had guns but had successfully hidden them from law enforcement by like giving them away to other people or, or hiding them in different ways. But of the ones who did have a gun, uh, of the 10 individuals who, who did have firearms, a total of 52 guns were confiscated, meaning on average of about five guns per person of the ones that were intercepted. 11 out of the 21 events led to the arrest of the subject in question. And of course, there were zero out of 21 that actually went on to perpetrate mass shootings. So, so that is the data. That is all the data that they provided in terms of summary statistics. Okay. Um, and at that point, they say, you know, here is our, here's our experience. And we, we admit fully that there is no counterfactual. We do not know what would have happened had we not intervened. And perhaps the answer, in fact, probably the answer in most cases is that nothing would have happened. But... This is the problem, right? You know, this is this is the same phenomenon in a say of why the TSA takes away your bottle of water at the airport, or why they they intercept your your pocket knife when you get on a plane and you forgot that it was in your bag. Is because there is this this risk, this perceived small risk that it could lead to something terrible, and that justifies all the checks that you go through at the airport. And then I think this is on a magnitude that is far beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 I believe that what they are actually saying is, is rather persuasive. 
Okay. Now, I, I, I want to stop there because I think I, I'd love to hear your 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 mm-hmm. thoughts on this. But after we've talked about it this little bit, I, I, I want to actually read into the into the pod some of the vignettes, which I think, and then I want to ask the question again about what what do you think okay. about this? Okay. Okay. So, so I'm going to stop there. I, I want to keep this this particular segment focused on the evidence and then we'll get to in the second part we'll talk about you know our feelings about it and talking about it so jim what's your what's your take on this as a study because we i don't think as far as i know i don't think we've ever done a case series before which was a big part one of the parts of my hesitation in talking about this so yeah so i i mean i i think that um it's very interesting and sad in many ways, but we'll get to the emotions later, that um, this is published in the annals of internal medicine. Um, I think that, you know, we don't know what would have happened in the absence of these interventions, but I think this study does teach us a lot about what these, you know, the specifics of these, these situations. So for instance, I was surprised by how many involved employee Mm-hmm. rage, it seems, often, most often because um, an employee had been terminated. Um, I also, another really interesting thing that I think we can learn from in this is the role of the whistleblower. So it was not always, you know, uh, an interaction directly with a law enforcement official. It was more often, you know, a friend or a colleague or someone who had seen something on social media um, who actually, you know, went and alerted authorities and i think that person's role in this is really interesting are you are you convinced by the evidence and i will say so i you know i i start off every study that we do i start off with what's what's my prior on this and so i have a i have a strong prior on this that it's going to work to an extent that's going to work but but i also think that the the effects may not be that large because as you point out chris i think you know, probably most of the time nothing's going to happen. And so the effect sizes probably aren't going to be very large. But the question is not what my prior is. The question is, what does the evidence tell you? Are you convinced by this as evidence? I think I am convinced by this as evidence. And I think, you know, it's not just the study, but also the background on how frequently, you know, one of these perpetrators does tell other brag about, you know, the intentions prior to the event. In that way, it seems like this could be an effective intervention. Right. I think, in fact, they, they mentioned in their, their intro, intro that in, in, the, in the recent mass shootings, the only one where the perpetrator did not make some sort of you know, statement of threat was the Las Vegas shooter. And every other one of them had been posting or threatening or mm-hmm. bragging in, in advance of this. Yep. So, so I actually flagged that for the exact opposite reason, which is I find that I found that problematic as a piece of evidence. And the reason I say that is because that feels to me like a cell epidemiology, I think it's called yes. a cell epidemiology, where you just look at the exposed ah. cases and you draw conclusions. Well, you know, there's five cases of, of cancer and they all lived by uh, a power plant. So it must be caused by the power plant. And if we really want to, I mean, what we really want to know is not did, did many of the, uh, or most of the people who were perpetrators of mass violence, did they brag about it beforehand is what is the proportion of people who brag about it before who brag about mass shootings who actually go on to commit mass shootings? Sure, I totally hear you. I'm going to bring it back to the airport screening example. Yep. If I was overheard in the line at JetBlue, yep, saying that I'm going to storm the cabin and strangle the cam- the, the captain and crash us in, into the nearest tall building, would p- would people be justified in not letting me get on that plane? 
sure, but but there. My point is that there has to be a presumption that people's words, to some degree, have to be taken seriously when the magnitude of the threat that is implied mm-hmm. is so significant mm-hmm. that we have no choice but to take it seriously. Sure, sure. And uh, but I think you're get, we're getting into the into the. I, I think why I wanted to hold that for the second segment I, because. I don't disagree with anything you just said. That's different from saying, is there evidence here that tells us that this is effective? And I think there is some. Now, of course, the, the authors admit all of this. In the first paragraph of the discussion, they go right into this issue and, and you know are very circumspect about what the data can say. Now, that is based, I think... I would say largely on the um, the aggregate sort of descriptive statistics. And so this is where I want to read into some of the specific vignettes, because I think as you start to hear the stories, the, the significance of the events and the perceived threat of that becomes more compelling to me. Mm-hmm. So let me start with this case five. During telephone calls with his mother and a family friend, a 24-year-old man with a history of excessive alcohol and marijuana use threatened to kill employees of the family business, his family and himself, the following days by shooting or bombing. He had threatened employees twice previously, and a prior conviction for a separate weapons offense had led to residential mental health treatment. The subject's uncle closed the business because of safety concerns, reopened the next workday with private security on site, and reported the incident to the police three days later. The subject's mother petitioned for a GVRO three days after the uncle contacted the police and the order was issued. The subject filed an agreement with the order and surrendered 26 firearms, one shotgun, four rifles, two assault rifles, 18 semi-automatic pistols, and one of unspecified type. A one-year order was with hearing was subsequently issued, which is also sort of uh, uh, you know remarkable because in this case they they applied the highest sanction. They were really concerned about this. So that's one case. The second one is a 21-year-old male posted a series of threatening statements on Instagram that were directed at his former high school, including, quote, rest in peace, name deleted, high school. Quote, nobody will be graduating from zip code deleted. Quote, I hate all of you. Quote, I hope I die tonight somehow. And quote, dead or in jail. An acquaintance who saw the post flagged down a police officer and a different acquaintance reported a post that appeared to show the man holding an AR-15 rifle. Both reporting parties were aware of prior school shootings and were concerned about a recurrence. The school district learned of the threats the following day and closed the school, and the subject was arrested that afternoon on a charge of making a threat with intent to terrorize. A temporary GVRO was obtained and a one-year order after hearing was subsequently issued. Case 12. This is the last one. When the principal and a security officer at an elementary school approached a 26-year-old man after he drove over a planter in the school's parking lot, the man threatened to punch someone. After being asked to leave, he stated he was going to explore the school grounds, drew a knife, and threatened to stab the police officer and the principal. More officers arrived and took the subject into custody after a struggle. Investigation revealed that the subject was scheduled for jury duty two days after the incident, but had posted images of ammunition and vague threats to his family on Facebook and owned a Glock semi-automatic pistol. The police obtained a temporary GVRO while the subject was still in custody, citing concern that he might return to the school to seek revenge for his arrest and recovered one firearm for him. A one-year order was after hearing was subsequently obtained. Okay. Jen? No, I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think that the most, the best way, since we agree that 
in these situations, like getting on the plane, the the um, the threat should be taken seriously. I mean, it seems like the best way to study this would be to see if it has an impact on on outcomes longer term. And I think that you know when people often cite the uh, changes in gun control policy in Australia, right, and how there has never been a mass shooting since those policies changed. I mean, do we think that that can be taken as, as cause and effect? I mean, is that is the is history a good counterfactual in, in that particular case? I, I think it's stronger. Okay. I think it's stronger. I still think it's it's somewhat problematic, but it's it's certainly stronger to me. I think we are in a fundamental pickle here. Mm-hmm. That th- this is the, exactly the kind of problem that epidemiology is not well suited to to, to solve, because we we rarely have long term data, and we actually have to make policy decisions based on common sense. Mm-hmm. And and this is one where 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 a control group is not going to help us because we cannot have a control group. I mean, it's true we could look at the implementation for ten years, but that at the ten years I, we we could also be in the position of saying, mm-hmm. wow. We should have done it. Yeah, but in this, the other fifty-one states. You I, know? So I agree with you, Chris. But the problem here is, this is a case where we need evidence. We desperately need evidence because there, you, you, and you know, and I. I don't want to speak for Jen, but I know how you feel. Feel a certain way about this particular issue. But there are whole swaths of the country that don't feel the way we feel about this particular issue in terms of what you should do about it. Uh, I'm not saying people don't agree that something shouldn't be done. I'm just saying in terms of what should be done about it. So this seems to me a case where we do actually need evidence because, you know, uh, it's so easy to say you're you are infringing upon rights without right. actually doing any good. But well, this and, is evidence. It's just mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. the best evidence. Right. Well, and also, I mean, I think these are these red flag orders are available in 15 states and D.C., right? So in a way you know, they, they are occurring and that evidence is, is being collected. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think that's where we need to go with this was we, we need longer term follow up on these to see what actually happens. It's not, it's never going to be perfect because poli- I mean, what you're talking about is policy analysis. Policy analysis is fundamentally different because there's no randomized trial. There's not even really an observational study. There is pre and post, but there are methods that can help us get at, you know, those, the, the impacts on things like that, that are better. But let me, let me, I, I want to transition us into the, the second issue. And I, I'm, because Chris, I know you and I have discussed this a bit before and we have feelings about this. I'm going to let Jen go first. And, and Chris and I debated whether or not to do this at all. Um, my, I was against, Chris was pro. My against largely centered on two things. Number one was that it was a case series, but also because it's a political issue. And I have concerns about our ability to actually evaluate the evidence effectively when we have political opinions. So I'm curious your, either your take on that or your just your feelings about talking about this subject in general. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, reading this paper is hard. And I think there, you know, there were more incidents, right? Even after the publication that that makes this very raw. But I guess I I don't, I I know it can be a political issue, but I don't, I think it's a public health issue. And that's the way I tried to approach it in in reading um, the article. I think it's fantastic that Annals published this. And I think it it probably came around the same time, maybe slightly after sort of the comments about, you know, stay in your lane and, you know, trying to persuade medical professionals that they had no role in in conversations of of gun violence. And um, and I think that's inappropriate. And do you do you think that having a political opinion on this subject and I'm not saying you do, but I know Chris and I do. (laughs) 
Um, I do. And I'm, I was <laughs> I was sure you did, but I, I'm just saying. Does that infringe on the ability to assess the evidence? Probably. It's. I mean, it's hard, right? Yeah. It's hard to stay completely neutral, I think. I mean, you know, the evidence being that there are mass shootings repeatedly here and not in other places. I Nearly mean, always using an AR-15. Okay. Nearly always. You know, that to me is is evidence, right? Evidence of of a problem. And so I think, you know, when that's not I don't I don't view that as political. So so yeah, I think it 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 can make it harder to to separate those those opinions, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um I don't think that should keep us from focusing on this as a as a public health issue. Sure. Sure. Chris, Chris, tell us I mean I know this is this is important to you. I mean it it's it's um it is very emotional, and you know we're we're trying to be objective here and uh, trying not to let this just become political. I mean, that's I think your your main concern. So, I, I guess I would say first of all that we we actually have much more evidence than we than this paper would imply, and and I'm going to go back to what they said in the introduction, which is that these the, these ERPO laws were based on restraining orders in the setting of domestic violence, and so it is it is not a a perfect analogy at all for obvious reasons, but it is an analogy. And so, you know, in, in my sphere, you know, in vaccinology, we are often in the situation where we want to infer the efficacy of a vaccine to prevent disease X. And we can't because disease X is so rare. This is very analogous here. Mass shootings are very rare. So the ability to study that thing is very difficult because of its unpredictability and its its scarcity. But what we do in vaccinology instead is we we find a surrogate or a correlate of something that is very common, which is is associated with that thing, which is analogous to that thing. And we power our trials based on those correlates or surrogates. And that is considered to be fairly persuasive evidence in the setting of preventative disease. Of course, we can do randomized controlled trials in vaccines. So it's not the same. I understand that. But to me, it feels like if we were to take that metaphor, we, we could say that, that, that domestic violence and restraining orders is a pretty good surrogate for an ERPO law in terms of measuring its impact. And there we have a sample size based on the hundreds of thousands pre and post. And we could probably study that and draw some inferences about the likely success of a very similar law taken into a different context. Uh, it, let me just interrupt you there. I, I actually think... If 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 that's true, presumably it doesn't. It, it we don't have to infer from one to the other. I mean, we we could make an argument that we wanted ERPO laws simply based on that evidence alone, not because whether or not they they are effective at preventing mass shootings. If they are effective at preventing domestic suicides, violence. domestic yep. violence, whatever it is, we might say these are good things. So I don't think you have to actually make the analogy there if the evidence is there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me let me try to explain why I had some concerns talking about this, and and it, it largely stems from the fact that this is a a case series, and as Chris, you've said a number of times, a case series is uncontrolled, meaning we don't have any comparison group. Now, I am I am largely convinced by the idea that these are important. Uh, efforts that to try and prevent violence. I think the challenge becomes uh, we don't get a ton of evidence out of a study like this to tell us how many events were prevented, and without that, we don't we don't know whether it's it's a lot or a little because some of these cases of of enacting these ERPO laws, um, there wouldn't have been any 
violence to begin with. And we just, so therefore we just don't know. And that's why I have a hard time determining whether we think this is evidence of a, of a, of a highly effective intervention or moderately effective intervention, or we just don't know yet. But my concern is what I also don't want is for that to be misheard as me saying, you know, we, we, we don't need to do this because there's no evidence or being, you know, discrediting a study that I think is, is, the best we're going to get for right now uh, until we get better evidence. And I worry about, you know, we talked about this earlier, the the idea that criticizing science is going to be used against science. And I think in this case, it's going to, you know, criticizing a study. I don't criticize it. I'm just saying it is what it is. You know, theoretically can be used against that particular study's weight in trying to change behavior. Right. But what, why I, do we publish case series ever? I mean, I think that's, you know, I think this serves exactly the purpose that case series are meant to serve. Can you say what that is? Hypothesis generating, right? And, and I mean, I think this, there are outcomes associated with this particular case series, which makes it superior in some ways. I mean, we and do, I do agree about that. Yeah. And I think, you know, on the flip side, if there had been 10 or 12, you know, shootings in these 21 cases... We'd we'd be probably convinced that this isn't an effective that's, intervention. That's a really good point that I hadn't considered. Right, yep. like if if somehow California had the you know the the the, the 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 series of events allowed for situations where there was an attempt to issue an ERPO, but the individual could not be located and then mm-hmm. went on to shoot, you know, and you're like you know there you go, you know this person was on the pathway and they intercepted and had not been, but that doesn't that didn't happen. So I come back to mm-hmm. the 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 starting point, which is what was my pretest probability and does this, does this limited evidence, admittedly limited evidence, move me to the right or to the left of higher probability that I think these kinds of laws are effective? I would say it does, in fact, move me to the right that I think that this is more likely to help than not. I think the data are, are not neutral. I think they're not perfect, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. they are evidence not, right. okay. because we have 21 cases where there was an individual who was exhibiting absolutely terrifying behavior and was ready to go. And they stopped them. And we have had 100 plus mass shootings in the last three months. Mm-hmm. And we have to make some decisions. We cannot wait for the randomized control trial, which will never happen. No, and I'm not, uh, let me be 100% clear, I'm not arguing for that at all. We're yeah. going to make decisions that are based on, you know, Partial, in the absence of, Imperfect data. Yeah. Imperfect data. But I'm, I'm really compelled by your, your point, Jen, because I hadn't really thought about it this way, which is to say, I had a prior on this that I think it's, you know, it probably is going to be effective and had and so this doesn't this evidence doesn't move me mm-hmm. much at all or or does no, it because move you I, at all, I, I was already in the camp of it's probably going to work but it doesn't does it move in, me to it strongly improves your odds somewhat not much it's kind of just fits with my prior it's kind of straight on whereas it could have gone the other way whereas if there had been a bunch of mass shootings tied to cases where they did actually intervene that might have shifted me back um, so maybe there is more evidence, potential evidence in the case series than I think there is. It's just I started off with a with a prior that was you know already right. But maybe you said that the strong. prior was that there's a ten to one chance it'll help. Are you now at fifteen to one, or are you still exactly at ten to one, meaning that the evidence did not move you at all? Yeah, Chris, I I, I think it does. I think it does. It does move me a little because you're you're. I think the points that you both have made 
uh, about you know how this could have gone differently does convince me that there is there is some evidence here. It, it may not be the the strongest possible evidence, but it is is clearly some evidence that that should have some impact on my on my thinking on this. Go back to so I want to go back to just finish with that this last point. Do it is am I crazy in thinking yes we know i'm crazy <laughs> in thinking that there is or that i should be concerned that either that that i'm going to be influenced in my ability to read the evidence by my political views or that this is potentially going to be you know that that my belief that the evidence in is limited is going to be used as evidence to do nothing so I'm I'm just thinking about that in the context of other epi studies, yeah. right? Yeah. When I read a study that seems to support something that I'm already doing, right? That I don't know. I'm I'm. It's easier for me to get on board with that so, with that result. So a glass of red wine is good for you. Or You're like, yeah, I'm, coffee. I, that I love <laughs> studies that show that coffee have have health benefits, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just so so. I think that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I there think there is really, a natural tendency. There is a natural tendency, absolutely. Well, let's 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 flip that around. Supposing you know, uh, supposing I was in the the camp of saying there should be no restrictions on guns, and I and I and I don't believe our laws work at all. W- with that uh, lens on viewing these data, would that necess- would that likely lead me to believe that these data made me more convinced that my position was correct? So that's where I think I find that that mm. it, it would be very hard to to say that these evidence line up to disproof of the suspicion that ERPA laws mm-hmm. work, and if that's true, then in, I think by default that means we're nudging to the right. Even mm. if our our pretest was ten to one against, now I'd have to say I'm probably eight to one against. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a good mm-hmm. point, and I yeah, think your you know your position, Matt, where you could have been moved the other direction but not really forward, is a little bit concerning because. Yeah, you know what? What if it's not perfect, but it's effective? And then you know we look at how what the the um, longer term impacts of, of these programs are across these fifteen states over some time period. And there, you know, what if there was a gun hidden somewhere and they didn't find it, and and one of these was carried out? Do we then say like, oh, it it doesn't work? It has no impact. No, I wouldn't say it doesn't work, but I would say it didn't work in that case, right? And mm-hmm. so that's different from saying. Did it not work in other cases? But, but that's going to be that's going to be a hard one to figure out. No, I wouldn't say. I mean, in the same way that we 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 have interventions all the time that we support that are only partly effective. I mean, vaccines are not one hundred percent effective, but we support them, right? So we would, we're not looking for something that is. I mean, we would want something that could prevent all mass shootings, but we would take something that would prevent half of mass shootings. Right. Of course. So I guess I ask again: like, does your ten to one prior stay at ten to one, or does it nudge up? To eleven to one, even based on these data. Okay, it nudged up to eleven to one, but I'm not sure it didn't nudge up to eleven to one because of <laughs> you I, convincing me. Because I, I don't, I, and I don't, I don't honestly, I don't honestly know <laughs> okay. the answer to that. I know, I so. know. I think, I think this is, this is. I mean, it, it is, it is such a difficult issue, yeah, and it is, we are, it is. And we, we, and we were so nervous going into this episode for all of these reasons, and it has exposed the the, the, the complexity of this. To me. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, boy, putting your putting your personal beliefs aside is is hard. And when I say putting your personal beliefs, I, I'm I'm all in favor of having a prior on evidence. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean putting it aside completely, but the evidence itself part of it has to be judged independently. And that is really, hard, really to do hard to do for something like this. Yeah. You know, policy and, and to be honest with you, the only reason I'm willing to have this conversation on 
on a podcast is because I don't study this as part of my job and therefore I feel okay you know, being in the position of just being able to evaluate the evidence, even if I do also have a strong prior. But if this was my field and it was also incredibly political, I think that would be very hard to do. Very hard to do. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've uh, we've probably got to move on to um, our next sections. Let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And um, sadly, I don't have one this time, so we're only going to have two. Chris, you want to you want to give us yours? Yeah. So I, I, I started because I, uh, on this topic because I'd stumbled in across this paper in science about some academic fraud involving the study of lionfishes. And this individual would collect lionfishes uh, somewhere in Australia at some reef. And, uh, you know, they found a lot of lionfishes, but the locals were like, there ain't that many lionfishes. So they were skeptical. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that when you looked up the, the photographs, a bunch of them were just the same fish reversed. Oh. So it was like, you know, I was like, ah, come on. And the paper got retracted and the author got fired. But it got me thinking again about one of our favorite topics, which is was which is intellectual dishonesty. And and I, I wanted to, to uh, read into the record one of my, my favorite examples of plagiarism, which is this really kooky, concocted story about this British classical pianist called Joyce Hatto. Okay. Have you heard of no. this? So this I is, this vaguely feel like I've heard this story, it, but it, I don't remember what it is. It's a little bit old. It surfaced around 2007. Yeah. And so, but it, it, is, it is just like a jaw-dropping story of dishonesty. So Joyce Hato was a British concert pianist, classical pianist, who had kind of like a meh career as a performer. And, and there's a bunch of reviews of her actual performances, which were kind of pretty snarky, should we put it that way. So she retired and became a piano teacher and then it kind of disappeared from view. In her late 60s and 70s, she and her husband, who was a recording engineer who had run a number of tiny little record labels over the years, many of which focused on reissuing old recordings, launched a catalog of her of, of her oeuvres that included essentially everything in the classical repertoire that you can imagine, including, you know, uh, concertos with large symphonies, okay? And these recordings received just glowing, you know, approbation. I mean, it was just like they were, they were revered. And she kind of came out of nowhere. And then in her late 60s and 70s, she developed cancer and was terminal and continued to record and, and release all these CDs. And so it, it added to this sort of like this sort of almost impossible fairy tale of overcoming adversity to create all these, these works of art in your, in your last years of life. And at the age of, you know, 70-ish in 2006, I think it was, she died. Now... Around January 2007, which is just a few months after she died, there was a, a, a blog post populated by piano audiophiles. And on this post, a piano aficionado writes a post basically saying, you know, I bought this Joyce Hato CD, which had Mozart's and Prokofiev and Albanese on it. And I'm listening to this thing, and it's like, I cannot buy that this is the same pianist in all three. Their style is just too different. I just like, this seems too wacky. You know, like musicians, they have their their ways, and they, they you can tell them. They're kind of like fingerprints. It's like someone's voice, you mm-hmm. know. You know mm-hmm. A soprano would never be, you know, you can identify Maria Callas from Giorgio, uh, you know, Angela Giorgio, like that. I mean, it's 
it's you know who you're listening to with piano is difficult because it's it's an instrument, but still the style mm-hmm. is always embedded. You can't hide that. And he's like, you know, I just don't buy it. Has anyone else been suspicious about this? And this led to a big fight online with like the Joyce Hato people, like just outraged that this was even being hinted at. Now this guy actually used a pseudonym because he knew that 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 mm-hmm. lightning strokes were going to come come back his way. Now on this chat room, hiding in the background, were a bunch of audio files from the University of London who had been working with this computer program called Charm, and they they had. Sorry, when you say audio files, those are not files. No, no, in the computer sense, people who love. Uh, got it. Really into classical music. Audio okay. files. Audio, got it. audio file. P H I L E S. So <laughs> they had created this this computer program called Charm, which is which they were uh-huh. using t- uh, to use sort of statistical visualization and actual visualization to chart the evolution of an artist's interpretations of works. Which like, is pretty what awesome. does Yasha Highfoot's l- look like in this three dimensional matrix when he was twenty two playing Sibelius's violin concerto compared with when he was sixty seven playing the same. Concerto. And you can see that Heifetz changed. And here's like the statistical visualization of that change. And how bloody cool is that? That Mate, is really cool. Actually. Right. How bloody cool. So they were like, OK, this is really cool. And at the time they were they were using this charm tool to look at a group of, of a pianos, a piano recording artists who would re- recorded a complete set of the Chopin mazurkas, which are apparently fiendishly difficult. And so there aren't that many people who've done them all. And Joyce Hato allegedly had done them all. So she found her way into this short list and they charmed her and boom, the fraud was out because her signature was spot on huh. correlation of, of a coefficient of correlation 0.999 with this, this guy from Belgrade. <laughs> Mm. Who was sort of the unknown but totally brilliant pianist who never quite made it after out of like second place in the Tchaikovsky or something, but was awesome, right? And so she like it was all his stuff. Now uh. that was now like percolating around. Months after this, the, the the plot thickens because this another audiophile, a guy called Brian Venture, gets a copy of Joyce Hato's Lists Transcendental Studies, which he loves. And he pops it into his computer, into iTunes, and the the Grace Note program, which picks up and says, oh, you've just you like inserted Beach, Boy, Beach Boys, yeah. right? It recognizes oh. the CD. Pops up someone else on a, you have just uploaded someone else. And he's like, huh? This, this other guy called, you know, Laszlo Simon from Hungary, who nobody had ever heard of, but had like come in number two with Tchaikovsky back in 1978 or something like that. Some other brilliant, unknown, young pianist. Bing, that was that one. And so this is now the, 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 the sweater, the thread is coming out of the sweater and the entire thing falls apart and it turns out the entire catalog was plagiarized. Oh. Okay, and so, you know, there was a through lot of- Through the husband? Through the husband, but, but Joyce- had to have been in on the fix, right? Of course. And unless you argue that she never listened once to any of your own CDs right. and said, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like me. You know, it, it is totally implausible that she didn't know. And, and like some of them, you know, with an 80-person symphony orchestra, how could you like forget that you weren't there? <laughs> that time we went to Poland and recorded with, you know, you know Olaf Pentoff and, his, and the, 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 the Krakow Symphony Orchestra, which doesn't exist, right? I mean, you know, it's like she couldn't have not known, right? It's just totally impossible. And eventually her husband, Barrington Smith, admitted that like you know yeah 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 i made up the entire thing and i just wanted i just loved my wife so much now 
that's the Wait, first. Were the, were the were the artists in on it too? Like, did they know that their work was being? No, they had no idea that they had uh, been plagiarized. But the the era of digital music caught up with them because the, the 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 scam had been going for about a decade at this point. You know, so we went from eight track, not eight track tapes, tapes <laughs> but we went from records to CDs and, and cassette tapes to Grace Note on iTunes, and that's when the whole thing started to fall apart. Now, the the part of this that I find is is remarkable is is not just that the fraud was so brazen, so like shameless so long and like you know but also the hypocrisy that came about it from the music critics okay so i want to read to you two critic critics they are both from a critic called bryce morrison in 1992 bryce morrison reviewed yefim bronfman's rachmanum iii's concerto and he said it lacked the sort of ernst and angst and urgency that had endeared Rachmaninoff to millions, and that Bronfman sounds oddly unmoved by Rachmaninoff's intensely Slavonic idiom. In the sunset coda of the adagio, his playing is devoid of glamour, and in the finale's fugue, he lacks crispness <laughs> Don't and know definition. What that means. I mean, exactly. This this could be like a wine review. That sounds like it was written by a program, right? Like it's got oaky flavors and cherry <laughs> hints of asphalt. Hints of, as, as exactly creosote and nope. <laughs> turpentine. Yes, it's definitely Chopin forward. Fifteen years later, however, we hear again (laughs) from critic Bryce Morrison reviewing Joyce Hato's plagiarized version of the same recording. Stunning, truly great, among the finest on record with a special sense of its Slavic melancholy. The fraud I love it. squared. I love wow. It. I have to say, I thought what I thought was going to happen there was you were going to read two <laughs> critiques of two different pieces that were identical. Right. Well, I mean, in this that case, the, even, the hypocrisy yeah. just makes your jaw on the ground and let's say yep. subjectivity. That's wild. It's what got a story. something to it. What a story. Wow. All right. Okay. Jane, what do you got for us? Okay. So we're moving from classical music to baseball. Cool. Uh, my um, favorite. I love baseball. Okay, so that's why you both big fans. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I don't know anything about sports, but I love baseball. <laughs> if go, I like, go if sports. I like sports. I love that one. Chris says, "Go this sports." This is the Stanley Cup thing, right? Okay. Chris, you, Chris, you like sports ball, right? Sports ball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you go to sports ball rehearsal, right? <laughs> After school. Is there such a thing? He's teasing me, right? Uh, he I is. Think he's he is. Me up. Okay, so Matt, you at least may be yes. aware that there is a larger representation of lefties in yes. Major League Baseball than in the general population. Left-handed pitchers. And that um, Well, we'll we're oh. going to talk oh. about this. Okay, so oh. um, and that left-handedness has been shown to have an offensive advantage in baseball. Didn't were you know aware of that? that? Nope. Okay. Okay. Great. So there was a study done relatively recently using statistics from the inception of Major League Baseball in 1873 through the 1993 season that found that a certain type of left-handed batter called a sinister right-hander. Have you never heard of a sinister (gasps) right-hander? Sinister means left in Greek. Okay. Well, this is the thing. So sinister right-hander. Sinister is left in Greek? I didn't know that. Sinister right-handers bat left but throw right. Bat left, throw right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, this study found that sinister uh, right-handers were more than 17 times more likely to play in the majors relative to, you know, sort of what you would expect based on a representative sample, that they were three times more likely than dominant left-hand players, so players who both bat and throw lefty, to have a career batting average over 299. 
And then, so they proposed this mechanism that it was related to sinister right-handers placing their dominant hand further from the striking end of the bat, which would give them more leverage and power. So that's kind of what the the authors of this study came up with as a potential mechanism. But in that study, batting average was the only Mm -hmm. um, offensive statistic that was evaluated. So... You may also not know that country of birth is a strong predictor of handedness in among major league baseball players. Wait, country of birth? So conditional on being in the major leagues. Yes, country of birth. Japan or Dominican Republic. So let me let me tell you. So um, the same study found that in major league baseball players who are from the U.S., thirty-seven percent of them are lefties. Hmm. From Canada, though. And here's where it gets interesting. 69% of the player, Canadian players in Major League Baseball <gasps> are, are left-handed. Are left-handed. That's weird. 33% from the Dominican Republic and then 30% from Southeast Asia. So Canada is the far outlier here. Many, a much larger proportion of lefties who play baseball. What is the, the natural left-handed rate? It's low. I thought it was 10%. Yeah, I think it's one in 10. Yeah, yeah. that's what I thought too. But. Um, yeah, so I so my son is a lefty, and so now I find myself counting people in the room more often who are left-handed, right, to see if it's and one in ten is typically typically yeah. what I see. Okay, so they also though showed in that study that sixty percent of the left-handed Canadians in Major League Baseball actually threw right-handed. Huh. What? So they had a theory about this, and I should really point out that the authors of this study, so this study was published in PLOS One a couple months ago, back in, at the end of August. All of the authors are Canadian, so we should just really point that out, okay? Mm. Okay, so um, Mm. they had this theory about why that means, why more Canadians would bat left and throw right. Do you have any ideas? Uh, Why? It's all the maple syrup. Right, right hand okay, throw, you can plausible. throw further, stronger arm. Okay. Bears. Has what to do else? Bears. Hockey sticks. What a- yes. What? Hockey. The way you hold hockey sticks. So. Oh. So no, it's bears. They it's hypo- definitely bears. <laughs> they are, or syrup. <laughs> or syrup. So they hypothesize that if you hold a hockey stick with your right hand at the top of the stick, that it's a natural transition to then place that dominant hand the at the at the bottom of the bat. So that would result in a left-handed swing. Okay? Whoa. But then it would have no effect on your throwing, on what right. you would be comfortable with throwing. So their their idea was that early hockey exposure produces a higher proportion of left-handed batters who throw right. I could kind of buy that. That makes sense. You think? It's really cool. So the point is we should... So in so the then, U.S., start teaching kids hockey. Well, and they actually we so they did. So these particular authors updated that Major League Baseball statistics database through 2018, and actually went a little deeper to investigate this question. So they wanted to know: Does country or region of origin affect your offensive performance? So where you were born. What batting and throwing combinations are associated with higher offensive performance? And then they also wanted to know, compared to other countries, does being a Canadian-born sinister right-hander offer a performance advantage? So the reason I was first interested in this paper is because the authors claim that they do a mediation analysis, Uh which you covered a few episodes ago, right? 
Do you remember that? <laughs> Chris does not. I remember. I, yes, I remember. I didn't it understand it. Well, Don, Don in particular struggled yeah. with it, and I I had to uh, say I didn't agree with it. Yep. Okay. So I, I don't think that what they're doing actually is a mediation analysis in the end, which is too bad. But they find that regardless of nationality, batting left, regardless of how you throw, offers an advantage. Okay. Um, they is- didn't find that overall the sinister right-handed handers had a, a special advantage. There was no direct advantage of being Canadian on your offensive statistics. Obviously. But 42% of Canadians were found to be sinister right-handers versus 19% from the US, yeah. 5% from Latin America and 31% sinister from Asia. Canadians. And for being Canadian, being a sinister right-hander did offer an additional advantage. So effect modification. Exactly. So they call it mediation, but really it's effect Mm -hmm. modification. And so they say this supports their hypothesis that early exposure to hockey can have a positive impact on your baseball career. So I buy all of that, but I still don't understand why why they don't win the World Series then. The Canadians? Canadians. Because there there are no Canadian teams. Isn't the Maple Leafs a team? There are... Okay. First of all, you have to start from the beginning. Let's, Matt. Try, let's try Toronto Blue Jays. But even even the team is is that Baltimore? Uh, even the team is in Canada. Doesn't mean it's Canadian players. They don't restrict to Canadians. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not a so Canadian. They're, kinda, oh, they're, they're everywhere. It's, they're it's everywhere. a wash. But if they were smart, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> They would, they would pull out of the hockey league and, and they would create an, a fighting force of extraordinary magnitude. Uh-huh. Absolutely. What's the what's the logic for the mediation that they gave? So so wait, what are the what are the two factors? So it's, they, okay, it's so they want left-handedness. Wanna, so they wanted Canadian. to know whether the offensive advantage of being Canadian yep. went through the effect of being a sinister right-hander. Well, so the that problem, could, but could, well yeah, that would that be, be fine mediation? if they had found that there was an advantage of being Canadian, but they didn't. Oh, right, there was right, no right, effect right. of being Canadian. Right, um, it was just sinister. Exactly. What if, what but being Canadian of, and being sinister what was about good. dextro lefties? What's a dextro lefty? It's the opposite of a sinister righty. Is that really a thing, or did you just make that <laughs> well, up? Well, the opposite of sinister is dextro. Well, yeah. we know it's funny they didn't hurts. use that terminology in the in the paper. But no, there was no just lefty is good. Doesn't matter how okay. you throw. Cool. All right, lefty wow, is that good. Is really cool. Lesson learned. That's so cool. I, what I got from that is there are a lot of sinister Canadians out there. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't trust them. So that is the. <laughs> are you Canadian? No. <laughs> Nick, you're not Canadian, right? Okay. We're Matt's all good. the only Canadian. That is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox, or Chris at ID.Gill, or Jen at at Jennifer R. Ryder. Nice. Thanks. Uh, we want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning, for being Canadian. and She's not Canadian, right? Oh. Oh, well. And Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. 